Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Bruce, there it is. Bruce, there it is. Here we are, Drancer, five in a row as we get to our latest podcast. It's been a while since we've done this, and there is so much to chew on. Now, look, before you do the entire show in your first answer, which tends to happen on this show from time to time, (laughs) uh, where do you want to start here? Because I actually want to talk about the game, then we can kind of get into COVID and and work our way back into some of the stuff we've heard from Jim Rutherford and everything like that. But uh, you know what? Hey, it's your show. You're the veteran. Where do you want to begin? (laughs) Well, it's our show, bud. Uh, let's Let's do game first. Then let's go to Rutherford. Let's finish off with COVID. But I've got a lot of updates. So if anyone's right. interested, you can you can hang around for that. But let's get to the meat, like the good news, the stuff that fans are excited for first. We'll service them and then we'll get to the positive or negatives on the back end. Well, and there was so much to like in this game, but it didn't start that way because in the first period, Vancouver Falls 3 nothing, and... Yaro Halak, who many people were surprised even started in this game, looked really ordinary. I mean, there was one goal that was flat out soft, and the other two were actually savable. And for the first time all season, no, they actually got some. Just the last one. Just nah, the last one was I, savable. Look, I think I think the last one was flat out soft, and I think the other two he could have had. The second one squeezed sorry, through. Sorry, sorry, sorry. The second one, the second one bounces off like three different sets of legs. That's a that's a that's a magic bullet theory goal. Yeah, like that's the that's the grassy knoll sniper theory our, goal. Like our goal. There's Kevin, nothing he could have done. Our goalie expert Kevin Woodley would have said you needed to be tighter. Did, did he say that? I no, look. I watched. The, I, I watched the highlight him. with him. I watched the okay. highlight with him, and he was like off a bunch of boots. He was definitely defending. His, Actually, I shouldn't his, say that. He, yeah, he's in the union, so there's never. Yeah, a goal he's in the union exactly. Um, and, you know, and I wasn't there. Uh, just um, coming back from Grey Cup, and uh, I'm watching it all, and and you know, obviously on the Zoom calls, but. Uh, trying to spend a bit more family time and not being there. And I've actually, I have not yet been to a Bruce Boudreaux coached Canucks game because of all of my football travels. Well, so the vibes, I, they are good. I've they watched are very every, good vibes, bud. I've watched every second of every game and uh, and certainly heard Bruce. And I was there at the first press conference before the game that, that night that got things started. But le- when you look at the second period, they got one goal in the second, but you could really see by the way the second was played that they were going to come back in this game. And I, you know what? That's probably too strong because we've seen them play well and come away with the moral victory, not any actual points. So you never knew, but the way this team is going right now, you kind of got the sense that they might break through this time. And, and sure enough, they did it. Their best players scored. Their best players were noticeable uh, throughout this game. And man, I mean, they, they didn't even have to manage losses. They won in regulation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they felt inevitable in that they did third period. Like they felt inevitable. They it were was tied pretty... before the midway point. They didn't have to go to the end and pull the goalie no. before the halfway point. And that first 10 minutes, you know, it was like, I don't think Columbus touched the puck. Like they were just all over them. And and you know, it was such a turnaround because that first period, I'm watching it and I'm thinking, oh boy, like this looks like the Canucks without 980 goaltending. You know, like this looks like the Canucks we've seen all season. Like how is Columbus exposing them on the rush? Like how are they so slow in comparison with Columbus, a team that's actively rebuilding? And all of a sudden they start playing with the puck and they start playing fast and their best players start throwing absolute haymakers. And Bo Horvat, like Bo Horvat had absolute swagger tonight. Like the the holster celebration sort of low-key holster celebration once he scored was awesome just so cool when he scored the first goal and then he wins it with that like sedin like <laughs> slap pass tip it's an unreal pass from jt miller and, a, and an incredibly skilled finish by horvat i mean he was the troop tonight like he was as good as it gets it was a ton of fun to watch 
And he wasn't the only one. Like Quinn Hughes was throwing fireballs. That that setup on the Pod Colson goal. Oh yeah. Uh, just ridiculous. Like that was that was actually the best play in the game. Like that was Bruce Boudreaux described him as awe-inspiring after the game, and he might have undersold it. Like that is that is a world-class play for if you watch a, that is a world-class play for a playmaking center, much less a defenseman. Oh my god. If goodness. you watched the pass, the Canucks. They put it out on their Twitter feed, but there was a low angle shot from the corner of yeah. that pass. It's like he was staring at the camera. Like it, you couldn't have seen it any better. And through the legs of a defender, right on the tape, ridiculous. And JT Miller's pass to Horvat on the game winner. You know, you talked about it as Sadine, like, but absolute thread of the needle with power to the point where Horvat couldn't attempt to shoot it. He just needed to get low, choke up on the stick, and make sure he got. All of it, and again, not all of it with a shot, but just full stick on puck on the redirection because if you had just gotten the tip of your blade on it, the pass was so hard, it just would have ricocheted somewhere. You had to get right behind the center of that pass in order to make a play on it, which he did. But um, yeah, like fantastic. Uh, there's no question about it, right? Um, uh, the way so, he played, yeah. all, all of their top players, right? And Boudreaux said it after the game, and this is what we were lamenting through the first 25 games. Their best players, like along with the penalty kill, their best players simply weren't their best, and they are now. And this team's got something going on right now. They do. I mean, five straight wins. Um, Ascends like five straight wins. (laughs) They have have not. I'm just being a jerk. No, you you are. But they have not come from behind. Uh, The first three-goal comeback for them in five years. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And, yeah, I mean, no, they – (laughs) <laughs> that those last 40 minutes like if you want to if you want to believe in a Boudreaux effect that was it like that was it that was enough to make me even take notice you know like that was enough to make even me be like oh boy there's there there could be there could be I'm not saying there is I'm saying there could be something happening here and I'm really curious now to see it play out I'm really curious to see if they can sustain that energy I'm really curious to see if they can look more like they did in the last 40 than they did in the first 20 on a consistent basis as the competition ramps up. Because one thing I thought about Columbus in the first is I was like, well, this is what they look like against a team that's not playing a back-to-back. You know, like that, you know, with a defense that can move the puck and a team that's not playing a back-to-back, and they look slow. And, you know, we'll see, because they've got Toronto on Saturday, and that's going to be a big test. And, you know, I mean... This is why COVID at the back, like hopefully they've got Toronto on Saturday and that'll be a big test. They need to win both those games against the Sharks. Like those are absolutely crucial wins for them to have because that's a team they're they're hunting down here. And wait a minute, wait, know, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're you're talking about this like you're thinking playoffs are a possibility. Like you're talking about teams they need to hunt down. What do you, who are you? Well, no, yeah. I mean, we talked about it when we when we put the playoffs to bed. And we said they needed something ridiculous. They needed something like 12 and, and t- you know, 10 wins in 12 games. Well, well, far end, they have seven and eight. They have seven and eight now. So I'm looking at the next four games and I'm saying, look, Arizona, San Jose twice, Toronto. Like they can get to 10 of 12, like we were saying when we'd restart it. They're close enough now that, you know, I don't, I'm not saying they have a sh- shot, but they have a shot at having a shot. And so you, you I'm going to look you at me to read this. Let, you want me to read the- should I read the standings? Why would you read the standings? Well, I'm just saying. Well, you're what talking do the about standings they, matter? You, you're talking about teams they need to hunt down. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't care about the standings. People are like they're four points out, and it's like, yeah, with three, three games, games in hand, yeah, three games uh, on in the Oilers, and, yeah. and it's the and it's the Oilers who are going to find another gear. It's the team with Connor McDavid who scores two points a game. Like, come on, how, how have they lost four points out? That's ridiculous. How have they lost six in a row? Well. They have goaltending issues and they don't have good depth. They had a terrible offseason. They still don't have good depth. Early on in the year, it looked like their depth was unbelievable. And that was as much as, uh, you know, had as much to do as anything as for, towards their success. I mean, yeah, we know how good the top two players are, but they had other guys chipping in and they were, wow, seeing them lose six straight and seeing Calgary fall off a bit of a cliff here as well has been interesting. To see. Right at the same time when the Canucks are, are finally on a little bit of a roll here. Uh, the mini heater, as they like to say. But is this more than just a Boudreaux bounce? Is there more to what you're seeing? I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure yet. Like, I'm not... I'm by. It's five games. It's 
five games, 250 plus minutes at five on five. It's, you know, not a ton. Like they spent no time on the PK four on five tonight, right? Because Columbus's power play came late, right? Yeah, but that also says a lot about how they played the game. Now, look, they totally. were awful in the first period regardless. But when you look at how they played the final 40 minutes, yeah, they shouldn't be taking penalties. They had the puck the whole damn time. No, 100%. But I'm just saying that, you know, we'll see. Like, one thing I saw with Carolina was that Carolina started to take rush chances. They didn't even bother setting up. They saw Vancouver's down ice pressure. They were the first team that had enough of a pre-scout on it that they were like, okay, we've seen three games of this. Like, let's prepare for it. And they didn't even bother setting up. Like, Jacob Slavin gains the line, and he's just, like, going to the net with a power move. Like, they were just taking rush chances when they were available. And they had three absolute great A's that Demko turned aside. And, you know, it just was this moment for me where I'm like, okay, the penalty kill has worked. This down ice pressure approach has worked. They haven't changed much in zone, but but the the pressure game has worked um, to this point. But they've been catching teams unaware. They're not going to anymore. And will elite teams just be generating rush chances against them at will? Will that cause Scott Walker and company to have to adjust? Hasn't happened yet. They've only taken two penalties in the last two games. Good on them. Um, but, you know, I still don't think the PK is going to be a strength as they play the balance of this season, right? And and I actually sort of wonder if, you know, like, anyway, I'm, I'm that's my nature, right? I'm like, uh, I don't know about that. Ooh, we'll have to see. I need to see well, more. For, look, but, but for me, I, I haven't seen enough. I haven't seen enough to be like a full-blown be- believer in a Boudreaux bump in terms of the quality of what this team can achieve. And we'll get into this a little bit further with when we talk about Jim Rutherford. But, you know, I do think the thing I believe for sure is that the vibes are good. Like, I think there is a totally different swagger around this team. I think it's very clear. And, you know, I, I still believe strongly that Travis Green is a very smart coach and we can get into why later. But, you know, I think the fundamental <laughs> the the fundamental fact is, is that I think his time had come here and I think Boudreaux is going to get an awful lot more out of Vancouver's players. And I think that part, the body language part, the intangible part, the swagger part, I mean, I think that part is undeniable. For me, as long as their best players continue to be their best players and play like that, and we've seen that throughout this five-game mini-heater, and we saw that in the final 40 minutes today, as long as that continues to happen, and you have to believe it can, and I I think everybody else is – playing to their capability. I think Pedersen has improved, but I still think there's a level for him to get to. Whereas I think Miller and Besser and Horvat and Hughes are playing close to their level. Uh, and and Pedersen is significantly better than he was in the first 25, but he is starting to arrive. But I, I think he can still get to another level. As long as their best players are playing their best, they should be able to punch with teams. Now, their defense is still really poorly constructed. Like, that's not fake. They've got three legitimate defenders. Uh, Tyler Myers, I think, has been playing very well during this stretch. But the bottom end of it has really gotten exposed. As And not that Pullman was great, but now you lose Hamannick as well. And, you know, you lose Shen, and now the depth really and gets now tested. Hunt. And Hunt. And now Hunt. You know, I'm wondering when we're going to see Jack Rathbone, because I think we should have seen him by now. Uh, he's but- been hurt, though. He's been injured. Oh, you know what? You're right. You're right. Um, so, so but, but I mean, I don't even know who the next guy up is. I mean. Well, we're going to need to find out because they, they, <laughs> yeah, they've they lost we a couple are. here. So. You no, know, they've lost three and they've lost them for a long time. Like, and, and Yulson, Yulson doesn't look ready for prime time. And Burroughs. I, th- I, I was impressed, though. I, he, Bur- he exceeded my extraordinarily low expectations tonight. And what are your expect? What are your what's your assessment of where we're at with Burroughs right now? Well, I thought the play he had the backhand sauce on uh, that led to Columbus's first goal. He tried backhand sauce to Brock Besser from the left side to the right side, so he wasn't even catching a guy. Like even if Besser had got it, it wasn't a one time shot. Sure. And I was just like, oh boy, like that is not acceptable. Um, was sort of my reaction there. Um, I think it's I think it's probably Madison Bowie's next up. By the way. Um, yeah, having, makes sense. Having quickly looked at it. So, you know, I mean, yeah. Look, and we've Burroughs, seen that movie. So, Bur- so yeah. like, they're going to have to manage heavily, right? Like, you've, you've got three defensemen that they're going to have to manage and give heavy, heavy minutes to 
until when? Because they're really, it doesn't get better, right? Like Shen eventually yeah. is going to come off COVID. Hamannick, we're not going to see for a while. And after that, it it really doesn't get better whether they're healthy or not. You know what? Burroughs, I thought, had a tough game in terms of that giveaway, right? He had a tough first period. But I think he was really key in lifting the club the rest of the way. Like, I actually think he settled in and had a really good last 40 minutes. As the team went, so went Burroughs. And I think that's basically who Burroughs is. Like, Burroughs is not going to be driving or dictating anything. But I do think he's shown that he can play. Like, I do think he's shown that he can play on a third pair and not hurt you. And I think that's what he did tonight, even though he did, in fact, in one particular moment, hurt the Canucks. I think the rest of the way he was solid. So, you know, Burroughs has done everything possible. Shen is a huge loss for this team, which does speak to the blue line quality. But also, more than anything, it speaks to why... Like Shen, give me Shen and Burroughs over Hamnick and Pullman ten di- time ten days out of ten, right? Like the problem is, is that they went out and spent five point five million on a pair of guys who aren't better than two guys who combined for one point five, right? Like that's the problem. That's the problem, and that's the problem that Rutherford's going to have to fix. Uh, but you know, Burroughs, Burroughs, I have no problem with ever. Like Burroughs has exceeded all expectations, and I think he's now going to play his next hundred and fifty games in the NHL. And no one would have thought that going into the season. Uh, all of that said, by the way, I think Burroughs would have been scratched today if Hunt didn't test positive. Like, all indications from what we saw in the morning and the fact that Burroughs was the rinse skater uh, peppering Halak with shots suggests to me that Burroughs was going to be scratched and that it was going to be Hunt in with Juleson, if not for the complications that COVID has and will continue, unfortunately, I, I fear, to uh, rot on this roster. So let's dive into um, the work that Jim Rutherford has in front of him. And that work could potentially look significantly different based on what happens in the next little while here. And, you know, why don't we recap a little bit? And first of all, I want to say it was fabulous to have him address this issue today and actually be able to hear from the GM on consecutive days. And I know some of that is the result of the fact that, hey, he's new, but clearly he's going to be a little more accessible here. And when you've got critical issues this organization has to deal with, you've you've got a GM that's now prepared to talk about it, not necessarily throw the coach at it. So that was that was nice to see for sure. But I know that, uh, you know, we've, we've done a lot of reporting in the last few days. I know Pierre Lebrun... Uh, put out an article as well on The Athletic that uh, talked about a conversation that both he and TSN colleagues Darren Drager and Chris Johnson had with Francesco Aquilini at the Board of Governor meetings in Florida. And, you know, I I think the the big thing that came out of all of that, Drancher, was timing. Who was hired when? When did Francesco handle, like, when did he know what he was going to do and did he handle it correctly? And then we've got the tweet, right? So the tweet was... Boy, there's a lot of different verbs we can use around the tweet where he criticized the media. And and let's be clear, when he hired Jim Rutherford quickly, was there criticism? Because from my standpoint, yes, it happened fast. However, two things that were more important that for me, I didn't look at with a need to criticize. Number one, he hired an extremely qualified, experienced individual. Number two, he hired him as a president, which we were all hoping would happen, but we weren't sure it was going to happen. So really, the the criticism that came was the decision to fire Jonathan Wall and Chris Gere. And not that we thought that they were going to ultimately survive all of this, but what was the need to fire them literally 24 hours after you've named Chris Gere part of your management transition team? And on top of that, you need guys to manage the day-to-day issues around the cap, right? And what the club is going through right now is going to be living proof of that. The the hyper-fast moves that are going to have to be made based on injuries to their blue line core, based on what's happening around COVID, to get guys up and down quick and to manage the cap on a day-to-day basis. They don't have that guy here now. So, and when was all of that decided? Because, you know, I reported that Francesco Aquilini had made the decision, had had leaned towards those decisions well before they were announced because they were ultimately cleared 
by Jim Rutherford, who also cleared or signed off on or approved or gave his blessing to the Bruce Boudreaux hiring. So why are we putting them as part of a transition team when you've already made the decision to move on and clear the decks for the GM, which isn't the wrong decision, just the optics around it are really, really horrible, aren't they? Well, yeah, no, they are. But the, I mean, okay, I think there's a lot going on in terms of the timeline, but I think the fundamental thing that went on was that, you know, at some point after American Thanksgiving, Francesco Aquilini like, while well, the team is still on the road, and we know he ends up in Montreal, right, for the second leg of that back-to-back, um, Boston, then Montreal, where the, where, the, where this current 7-8 and eight starts, in fact, right? And it's one of the last three games that Travis Green ends up coaching, but we know that he shows up in Montreal. So I think it's the weekend after American Thanksgiving, he goes to North Carolina and meets with Jim Rutherford at that point. Like that's following that Pittsburgh loss and the JT Miller uh, non-comment, right? It's following mm-hmm. the Columbus practice um, in and around the time when the Canucks were rumored to be in on, you know, Claude Julian. And we started to hear Scott Walker's name and, you know, there were Dale Talon rumors and on and on. <laughs> at that point, he goes to North Carolina, right? And he meets with Jim Rutherford. And that's when the conversation starts. And... The next, the, the week unfolds, the Canucks beat Montreal, they beat Ottawa. They come back and they don't make a coaching change. Uh, Thursday's a travel day, no, or sorry, Wednesday they fly back. Thursday's a day off, Friday's a practice day, no change ma- is made. Saturday, they play the Pittsburgh Penguins and we all know what happens, right? The, a dark day, the dark day that ends the Benning era. And at that point, they m- make the decision to change things up Saturday night. And, you know, calls Bruce. This is by Bruce Boudreaux's account that calls Bruce on Saturday. He says, yeah, I'll do it. Sunday, he gives him three hours to get a COVID test and get on a jet. (laughs) Now, I think that jet would have stopped and also picked up Jim Rutherford. But Jim Rutherford was sick and like really sick, like well under the weather, non-COVID illness. And he wasn't ready to do it while he wasn't feeling well, right? Like he just wasn't, he wasn't going to say yes that day. And I think from that point on, the Aquilinis and the Canucks organization start improvising, start juggling, you know, plates. <laughs> and you know what? This organization, uh, especially a process that was like relatively rushed and, and focused on Rutherford entirely and flying by the seat of their pants a little bit, you know, they weren't capable of doing that without the seam showing. So there's a release that goes out and um, Doug Jarvis and Chris Kier are cited in it in an Aquilini quote. And then on Monday, they present Stan Smeal as this president and he calms the fan base. And, you know, Aquilini admits a week later that, you know, he hadn't told Smeal that he basically had Rutherford enough in hand that he'd signed off on the coach. Like, you know, Rutherford hadn't said yes. There was a chance he wouldn't say yes, but it was done enough that he gave, that he ran the coach by him. And so, you know, they they sort of present Stan Smeal and, and kind of use him as a prop, which I don't love. Yeah, I and hate that. that was I clear. That and they put him in the release the next day when they fired Chris Gear and Jonathan Wall, rather than the which, owner, which was on Friday. So by Thursday, though, rather they get Rutherford TS, and you've got to give the owner credit for that, right? Like you got to give the owner credit for Rutherford 100%. and Boudreaux, right? He turned on a dime with the team, you know, covered in shit, and he brought in two really strong candidates that Canucks fans should be really really excited about leading this organization. I already think Rutherford's made as commanding um, a first impression as, as possible. And I think Boudreaux obviously has like captured the hearts and imaginations of the city. So, I mean, credit to them, you know, like they turned a really bad situation around and they did so quickly, but they broke some eggs in making that omelet. And, and among those eggs is that they lost some good people. And, and look, I think the reason that gear and wall weren't dismissed the Sunday with, uh, Green and Weisbrod and Benning and Baumgartner is that in the event that Rutherford had said no, in the event that they had to turn to plan B, they needed guys who could do, who could run things like they needed guys who could execute. And so I think it was just expedient to keep them around for a few more days. Um, do I love how it went down? Do I love Smeal being quoted in the release firing his colleagues? Do I love the way that they treated Dan Smeal and didn't level with him about where they were at with Rutherford? No, I don't. But I also think that can't be the story at this point. The story has to be that an organization needed to change 
and did so rapidly with with credible people. And, you know, for whatever reason, ownership decided to, um, you know, clean out Jim Benning's guys. And, you know, in in the process, I think, um, you know, fired a fired a couple of really high functioning individuals who, you know, hopefully will uh, will land on their feet and do better on the other side of this experience. But, you know, who I certainly don't think you could look at and say were the problem. I mean, they were the they were the executors. They were the civil service. They weren't the political appointees. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. But let's move on to Rutherford, because for me, you know, the timeline as it unfolded, I didn't I was confused. and I didn't love it. But understanding it better and understanding that it was a two week process to get Rutherford to yes, and that he was really who Aquilini was dead laser focused on you know, changes my perspective on it a little bit, because I don't think the Smeal thing happens if Rutherford's not ill. You know, I don't think Wall and Gear stick around for a week and are cited as important parts of the transition team if Rutherford's not sick. Can and I ask, so you, I think can I ask they, you a question? Yeah. Could Francesco not have done that press conference without Stan Smeal? Well, he could have done it with Boudreaux is the problem. Like, there were options. Yeah, but, like, it, it, he was totally a prop. And for a guy that's been that long serving in the organization, I think that stinks. Now, look, let's separate that from the fact that getting Boudreaux and getting Rutherford were home runs. Home runs. And there is no criticism there for that, and there's no criticism there for the timing. Be clear, right? But as far as you make, you know, you're, you're making sense as far as the timing on gear and wall, although Rutherford did sign off on those two moves. You know, and they were they were they were thrown by Rutherford, is my understanding. And Rutherford didn't really know who they were, and was comfortable with the decisions to move on from those guys, while he well, in the process was getting to yes, right. And again, you know, they've still got to make some decisions on who to bring in to manage those mechanics because those are going to be right in their laps today. But you know the Smeal thing well, yeah. sucks, and well, let's let's get into that in a bit because I think the Hamannick thing is uh, an illustrative example. Hamannick hitting LTI, yeah. Uh, so I do want to hit that shortly, but let's um let's I I do want to talk about Rutherford coming in and some of what Rutherford said because I think for me, like all eyes are on this guy now, and and already I mean we've he had a press conference on Monday, he had a press he he did a Zoom on Tuesday. He addressed the club's COVID situation. I think he did so very credibly. Uh, he was asked tough questions on Monday. And I thought handled, you know, even the Jared Scaldi question, you know, with an honest forthrightness that, you know, left me really impressed. Like in this market, so often this organization has, you know, worked the refs, complained about the media, tried to hide things, tried to go on the offensive, like, Hey, you guys don't even know the Hamannick story, you know? And then it's like, well, turns out we kind of did, <laughs> you know? There's like this sense of trying to outsmart or or c- combat the media. And one thing that Rutherford's done is he's just come in and been like, yeah, this is what happened. This is my experience with it. This is, you know, I'm honest, I'm forthright, I'm unadorned in how I'm going to answer your questions. I think this team has holes. This team has flaws. We're not in the cycle where we can trade away picks. You know, we're going to need to look to Europe and NCAA free agents because we don't have a ton of prospects or assets or future cap space. I mean, Rutherford basically just gave an assessment of where this roster is at that like echoes a lot of the things I've been crushed as too negative for saying over the course of the past three, four months. And I mean, I love it. I love it. He's just come out. He's been super honest. And I think that's a style of communication that no one's tried in this market. And you know what, Farhan? I have a, I have a, I have a thing for you. I think it's going to work. I think where this organization gets itself into trouble is when the seams show. I think if you just level with people, you know, in fact, I think that's the only way you can do it in this market because there's just too many of us. There's too much scrutiny on every little thing this team does. There's too many people working every angle. I think if you just level with people, I like, I think it's going to help turn down the temperature. Mike Rutherford's a guy who can do that. And if that's like all he accomplishes, I mean, forget the additional value he'll have managing up or any hockey operations decisions or his ability to make trades or his aggressiveness. Like if that's if that's all he brings. And I think he'll bring more. If that's all he brings, that's enormously valuable. Like that's a huge value add over where they were with, you know, uh, Benning's communication style, for example. So I, I've just been really impressed with Rutherford's first 
48 hours in town since he arrived on Sunday night. Yeah, I know. You know what? I couldn't agree more. And and that's the thing is that you can you can over, you can micromanage and just really kick yourself in the nuts by trying to do that, right? And that's what this club has done repeatedly. <laughs> nuts. Right? Like, am I wrong? No. Right? Like, like, think, of the, think of the number of times they've tried to – and the Hamannick thing is just so the perfect example, right? Like, yep. You, you think you can control the message and you can work your way around it and you can lie your way around it. And like, come on, man, like you are right. There are too many of us. Somebody is going to break the story. Somebody is going to get to the bottom of what's actually going on. And then you're just going to look even more ridiculous than you already do. Right. So, yeah, just to get clear messaging and to just say, here's where we're at, like it or not. But here's where we're at. And here's the truth. I think that's kind of that's all anybody is looking for. Right. Like, don't treat us like we're idiots. Don't treat us like we can't handle the truth. Just like let, let it happen. Right. And when we saw it today with the COVID thing, like we saw it today with Rutherford's like first emergency presser, just explaining where they're at. Well, you know, we're expediting tests. We're doing this. We're doing that. This is where we're at. This is why we uh, scrub morning skate. This, you know, players weren't comfortable. Like, you know, he just he just laid it on the table. And I think at the end of it, everyone was like, hey, that was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was really impressive. He's just a guy who's done it all. He's done. He's done it all. He's been there. He's done that. He's not overawed by what he's seeing. He's really impressive. It's been a really impressive start from a communication standpoint for, you know, the storied exec. Well, if you are impressing Drancer, uh, wow, that's a big deal. But and we're going to we're going to dive into a little more in the COVID thing because there's so much to get to on this. But first, one final break. So, Drancer, just a lot to unpack because this moved fast earlier in the day. I mean, you get a situation where you've got the goalies out before the morning skate, getting some work in, and then you've got Pedersen and Hughes in masks on the bench working on their sticks, and all of a sudden the players get together, led by Bo Horvat, and you know they talk about this with Bruce Boudreau, and they're just not comfortable, and they react accordingly, right? Because you've got the positive test back from Luke Shen. You've got the positive test back from Lamico, and then it just moves from there. Morning skate gets canceled. Uh, you know, media gets sent home. Availabilities are on Zoom. We get an update at 6. There's a couple more tests here, one of which doesn't get unveiled until actually the end of the first period of the game. So they're sitting on four positive tests right now, and obviously everybody's holding their breath for tomorrow, but just... Take me through the day, uh, you know, you were down there and just go through the detail and the minutia of how we arrived to where we are now. Well, from my perspective, I'm at the bar last night when I find out that um, there's been a positive. There's mm -hmm. been one, there's been one positive and I'd heard that there was two, but I worked it a bit when I was actually before I even got out of bed this morning, I was working it and um, along with, um, you know, our, um, that's a bad friend, visual. Your, you working it while you're getting out of bed before <laughs> you, you like that, you, your friend and mine, where was Wallace it, in all this working it with your friend and mine, Rick Dollywall. Well, I don't yeah. know where Do Dolly Wallace, um, is, <laughs> is what I should have named my dog actually. Yeah. Um, but, uh, me and Dollywall working it this morning and, you know, we had Luke Shen, but, but I, I don't disclose and nor does Dollywall. We don't disclose player names. We let the team do that. That's private medical information from our perspective. This is an illness, not an injury. You know, like yep. this isn't a, this isn't three to four weeks with a, a sprained knee. This is, you know, a, 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 this is a private health matter. So we don't disclose players, but we had Luke Shen this morning and uh, confirmed it, got it out there. And then I go to the rink and I get Dollywall calls me and he's like, there's another one. And I was like, so sure that there was one, but they'd gotten another one since I'd confirmed the one. You know what I'm saying? So, sure. so, so then Murph comes down and he's got it. And eventually morning skate, we see morning skate scrubbed. And the fact that Hughes and Pedersen were in masks was just a sign of the enhanced protocols that the players were operating in while uh, in the team facility, something they weren't doing prior, right? Like players who are fully vaccinated don't have to mask up in the, in the facility. Um, but they were today. And that speaks volumes about the level of concern around the club. So, there are only six players in the lineup tonight who tested positive in the Canucks outbreak, which ultimately, you know, included 21 players a year ago. Can you believe that? That's how much change this organization wow. has seen. There's only wow. six guys. And so, and so, and there's a seventh when you include Travis Hamannick, who wasn't in the lineup tonight. 
but that's it. Six plus one. And, uh, and, you know, so I'd imagine it's among that group, which would be, you know, Myers, Mott, Horvat, uh, Hoaglander, Miller. um, Nope. Miller never tested positive in the outbreak. Oh, of course. Yeah, you're right. You're right, right. And, and, um, sorry, a Besser ultimate, and neither did Besser, right? So Miller and Besser don't, aren't among those six, but there are six, um, you know, you can go through it if, if you want, but it's Myers, uh, Horvat, Mott, um, you know, a, a group of six. I, I counted was, it out Pedersen, Pedersen was injured at the time. So, and so was Pearson. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you really get down to it, right? It's like, oh my goodness, the, the amount of change that this, uh, Demko is one of them, right? Uh, so it's a small group who who had the experience and knew. And here's the thing, like, after the game, Bo Horvat said it felt like deja vu today. And as I reflected on it, it really did. And the Tucker Pullman getting pulled out of the game thing, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Godet getting pulled off the ice in that one practice, right? Yeah. Where they where yep. they got his RT-PCR test and it was positive and he got pulled off before they started power play work. And you'll recall, because you and I fought about it at the time, although off camera, um, but I was like, <laughs> I'm the only I'm the only media guy here. And I noticed it. And that's how we knew about the source of the outbreak. And that was like a thing I kept bringing up, being pompous as fuck. Um, even though even though when, my guy Owen was there. Even though you had a camera there, but not a guy yeah. who would have noticed that without me. So, you know, we fought about that because I was like back padding and you're like, yes, I had a camera. And it was like we just argued semantics with one another as we do, as we do. And, um, anyway, and I was, and I was right. <laughs> well, you were right. You did have a camera there, but would Owen have noticed without me? Would, would Owen have noticed? Like, you know, but you just can't say only. No, nah, whatever. You can't say anyway, you're the only outlet. I, I was just being, a, I was just being a jerk. Cause TSN had folded like three weeks before. I Vancouver, know, right? I know, and I was like, I, know, I, know. I was like my, my dream of being on tech yeah. 40. So anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> and not to relitigate you still got to work you still got to work with me though that's true was, and that you know what that's that's the real dream realized so so i but i was reminded of that because horvat and company knew right and and look horvat is the man like honestly he i is. can't tell you how impressed i am that a group of hockey players like this sport this you know um uh, I say jump, you say how, how high sport, right? This, this group of guys who went through this gruesome outbreak last year were like, hey, like we know how dangerous on ice transmission is, you know, like when we're on ice in an athletic environment with anyone who's positive, like we know how fucked that is. We know how dangerous that is. It happened to us last year. We stepped on the ice with a guy. He got pulled off midway through practice. Then we had a morning skate the next day. And 21 of us tested positive and a lot of our families, like a workplace cluster that probably ended up including 50 plus people when you include players and their families and coaches and their families. And, you know, we're not doing it like we're not comfortable with this. This is crazy. Like kudos. Yeah, but that, that's good, good on you. That, good on you. No, good on them. They're, you're right. But they didn't escape it because they ultimately did all play tonight. Well, sorry. So I want to get to this. <laughs> I want to get to this. Slowly, but I'm saying the tragedy of this is that this group of players had the stones to do that and to understand how dangerous that circumstance was. And so before the game, they were tested twice, right? In enhanced protocols, activated by the NHL, as they announced today, they had a rapid test. They have to rapid test now every time before they step on the ice. And so they rapid test and they also do an RT-PCR, which has to be sent off to a lab. The rapid test flags Brad Hunt before the game. And so he's not an option. He doesn't step on the ice for warmups. The club announces that he is in the code of COVID protocol. The game begins. They spend 15 minutes on the ice with a guy who later tests positive when they get the lab results from the RT-PCR back. And that's Tucker Pullman. And now we're in a situation where despite the player's common sense and, and, and guts and and best practice intervention, right? And and by the way, uh, because you interrupted me giving people kudos, kudos to Bruce Boudreau too for just being like, yeah, you you know what, you guys aren't comfortable. I get that. Uh, he he deserves kudos too. There's other coaches that would have flipped out. Um, but yeah, despite all of that, despite all of that credit that I'm ladling out, nonetheless, 15 minutes on Rogers Arena ice 
for a second game in a row with a guy who's now a major concern in, in Tucker Pullman, right? Because they were also on the ice with Seth Jarvis, who tested positive the next day on Sunday. And now you're looking at this team and thinking, oh boy, I hope, like, I hope so desperately that the spread stops, like that there are no further positives. But knowing how dangerous it is to step on the ice with some of these more infectious uh, infectious variants um, with a positive, I mean, I don't know that you can trust that that'll happen. And here's here's one last detail for you and for our listeners, Farhan. Um, the Canucks will have a late departure to San Jose to make sure that they're able to get results from further testing before heading to the United States. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, they've, they've got to take it. That's on approach. Thursday, by the way. Sorry, they're le- but the game is on Thursday. Oh, sorry, that's on Wednesday. It's, it's so you're talking twelve fifteen as we record this. So I just looked at the my like thing and was like tomorrow, but it's like no, actually that's today. We've just run late. My day is a mess. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think we're all collectively holding our breath, having gone through this a year ago, and just how difficult it was for them. I mean, the one positive but it is different is, too, right? Uh, it's different in well, first of all, they're vaccinated. Number yeah. one, which doesn't mean they can't get it. But the cases that we're hearing about in all the leagues, there is very little in the way of symptomatic cases here, right? There's a lot of asymptomatic, whether it's what's happening in the National Football League, because they've had their biggest numbers since last July. I think it was 37 yesterday, another 28 today. Um, I think the Cleveland Browns are up to like 11 players in the protocol in the last two days. Uh, You know, and this this is happening for real. But again, we're dealing with, a lot of asymptomatic cases because such a high majority of people are vaccinated. Yeah. Well, and I've talked to, I've exchanged notes with two of the four Canucks positives, both of whom were asymptomatic. So I can't say that everyone's asymptomatic because I don't know, but two of the four are, um, at least to this point. And hopefully that continues. Um, so, you know, I think the, I think the fact is, is that this is so much different I mean, do you remember last year when, you know, like every guy who I whose phone number I have who tested positive and I never reported anything about player symptoms, I was checking in with every day, like just like making sure they were OK. And a lot of them were like some guys would send me photos of like them doing yoga on their patio <laughs> and uh-huh. some guys and some guys were like, you know, talking about brain fog and sudden onset vertigo and like really gnarly stuff being winded at the top of the stairs. Um, being concerned about their families, being isolated from their families until their families also test positive. I mean, that was such a grim two weeks, as you recall. Uh, You know, this is going to be different, way different, because these aren't, these are no longer, you know, um, naive immune systems that, that players have. Plus a lot, you know, at least a fair few of these guys also have natural immunity in addition to being double vaxxed. And I'm sure some got boosters as, they, as they'd been on a recent road trip through the United States. So, you know, fingers crossed that uh, we're looking at only asymptomatic no matter how bad this gets. But also fingers crossed that there is no further spread and that there's no spread to families this time around. I do expect that no matter what, this is going to be a very different type of story than the one that we covered last last April. Yeah, I think you're right. But w- let me ask you this. What about just the fact that they've now got to go into han- enhanced protocols and you're probably going to get back to some of the situations you dealt with on the road last year where you can't, you know, be with another with, uh, you know, in somebody else's room or gather together for meals or whatever that's going to look like, because it's going to evolve as numbers keep going up. How much are you a player right now? And yeah, you're concerned about about getting the the virus, but you also know that you're likely to be asymptomatic if you get it. How much are you dreading going back to that life? And I know in the bigger scheme of things and perspective and all of it, you know, as long as you're okay, that's the main thing. But a lot of these guys were just so excited about this year because they didn't have to live last year again. I mean, I think you're, (laughs) I mean, I think it sucks. I think it's going to suck for everybody and it's going to suck for us. You know, like, I don't know when I'll be on the road again. Because until I can chat with guys face to face, I don't get a ton of value from being on the road versus watching on TV. Right. So, I mean, uh, just from my perspective, I'm like, well, that sucks. Now my job goes back to being what it was during the pandemic, which is like all of the normal work and none of the fun. 
And I think that's the same kind of baseline experience that a lot of people have had during lockdowns and various pandemic things and work from home life and on and on. And, and honestly, that's the experience the players had too, right? It's like all of the work of NHL hockey with not as much of the fun of the, you know, night out or the pregame dinner or the what have you, right? So, you know, it sucks. Like it does suck. And, yeah. I, and I think any player you talk to is going to tell you that. So you're not going to San Jose? No, and I was going to. Like I was going, I wasn't going to go. And then they hired a new GM. Uh, or sorry, president of hockey operations. And I thought, okay, well, I'll go put in FaceTime. And so I was about to book when I got, um, when I caught wind of a positive last night and then I decided not to. So, you know, I've already, I'm already scrubbing a trip. Um, cause I would have loved to go to San Francisco. I would have hit the athletic head offices and, you know, um, had some content meetings and covered the game and, um, you know, enjoyed a nice meal and, in, in, uh, oh my goodness, I can't remember the name of the street that I really like in San Jose, but whatever. It's the one that the Hotel Valencia is on. And uh, yeah, that's that's not happening now. So I'm um, in the same boat. So it goes. Got, yeah, college football playoff. I w- was booked and now I'm not going to that. I am still scheduled to go to Super Bowl. So I'm hoping that doesn't change. But uh, yeah, fingers crossed. Right? It, like, yeah. I, and there, look, I don't want to deal things with out this again. There. Yeah, there's bigger things out there. But boy, you just imagine all of a sudden if government health authorities get involved and say, OK, we got to scale back attendance at hockey games. And and again, like we understand the big picture, but there is a logistical, mechanical piece to all of it. If you're Francesco Aquilini, you're probably going to lose your mind at that point. And just for all <laughs> of us to have to take a step back, right, uh, is is difficult to do. It's really difficult to do. And that's totally fine. Like, it's okay to say that, you know, like, you, you, I don't think you lack compassion to say like, hey, I, I'm going to struggle if if there's new restrictions that are put in, like. It's been nice to be living somewhat normally, even though I've still been cautious, you know, like it's been it's been nice. It's been enjoyable. I've been enjoying the trappings of normal life. I've loved hearing the chants at Rogers Arena and hearing the crowd react to goals scored like the vibe in the building tonight during that third period as they came back. Like, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that at all. Like that is. That's why we do you, it. You, I think I think you prefer empty arenas with JT Miller. Sorry. Oh, fuck. I have no interest. I have that no sounded, interest. That sounded that. a lot like JT Miller, but uh, <laughs> but I, but I, I digress. not as animated, and I didn't break a no. stick. No, you didn't. Uh, Canucks uh, in San Jose on Thursday. We will do this again. Uh, when are we going to do this again? Uh, after that game on Friday, let's do that and preview the Leafs. Of course, <laughs> let's wait to see though. Like we got to see. I mean, will they play? Like here, the problem with going to the states, right, is that yet you have twenty four hour turnaround. It's not like you test. It's not like you test today for your flight, right? And then come back on that test, which is how it would have been a month ago. Now it's you test and you have to test again when you get to San Jose to come back. And if you're a po- if you're a positive, you're stuck for two weeks. So like you have to be really careful about boarding that flight because you could lose a guy for two weeks. And this comes back to Hamannick, by the way. Hamannick got put on LTI. Today, which means he's not available to the Canucks for 10 games, dating back to his injury uh, and the injury is backdated to the 9th of December. And, you know, I asked Jim Rutherford about it when he did his sort of presidential uh, address the outbreak Zoom this today. And he said, you know, we had information about how he was trending in terms of his healing process. And, you know, he's not going to be ready to return before those 10 games are up, which should have been December 30th. But what if the Canucks end up scrubbing three games or something like that? Like, what if the Canucks end up not playing again until after the weekend and you lose three games? Well, all of a sudden, those the, all of a sudden his return date becomes something like January 6th or January 9th or, or what have you. And that's four weeks. Now you might be down an option on defense and who knows where this goes in terms of COVID and, and on and on. But it becomes really hard to roster like an NHL caliber defense uh, as a result. And, and those are the sorts of really difficult decisions that the Canucks are going to be navigating, especially on the blue line, because right now where they're at, like they can't have Hamannick back until December 30th at the earliest. Tucker Pullman is going to be out until the 24th because it's 10 days on protocol. Brad Hunt till the 24th. Luke Shen tested positive on Monday. So that will be the 22nd of December. Uh, Yuho Lamico will be the 14th, 24th. So, I mean, like, and all those guys count against the cap while they're on COVID protocol. 
Like this is going to be a very dicey tightrope to walk. And it's going to be walked by Jim Rutherford, probably himself, at least until he brings in additional reinforcements. Like, I don't know what type of support staff he has, but like, wow, that's going to be a tough, what a tough way to enter an organization and try to rebuild it when, you know, a lot of your time is going to be spent on, on some of the logistics, like the roster mechanics of navigating, you know, even, even if the outbreak spreads no further, just what's happened now. It's going to be a time-consuming process for Vancouver's top executive. Well, assuming the Canucks do play Thursday, we're going to do our next podcast on Friday. Heck, we might just do it anyway because we might have other things to get people caught up on. And then uh, they actually play San Jose twice in their next four games, both times on the road in between Saturday, Sunday, back-to-backs, Toronto and Arizona. And we will... Look forward to breaking all of that down for you. In the meantime, we do want to let you know that Trevor uh, Trevor Zegers of the Anaheim Ducks joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly on the Athletic Hockey Show on Tuesday. Um, Lob City. Lob City, Trevor Zegers. Yeah, that's right. Don't tell torts. Meanwhile, uh, thanks for (laughs) listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review. Subscribe to the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. To get all the bonus content from our entire network, this week, Ian Mendez and Down Goes Brown from the Athletic Hockey Show provide extended bonus content. You can start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash thevancast. Hey, it's been a long day for you, partner, I know. So uh, I'm still getting back from the Eastern Time Zone and thawing out from cold weather spots uh, sorry you're not going to get to go warm up in San Jose, but uh, maybe maybe the next time around on Tuesday you'll get to go. Yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll be in Toronto for the second one, assuming that gets played too, because I'm, I'm going to be in studio um, for, for Sportsnet. So it'll be interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm very sad, though, that I won't get to visit my old Hotel Valencia haunt and watch a game at the S&P Centre. Uh, but so it goes, so it goes. Hopefully the Canucks do make the trip. Hopefully there's no more positives. Hey, hopefully we have some more wins to talk about. Uh, Farhan, because this has been, hey, a lot of fun for Canucks fans. Absolutely. We'll do it again on Friday. Thanks, my friend. All the best.